Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. John David Washington made his acting debut in 1992 in Spike Lee's Malcolm X. John's father, Denzel, yes, that Denzel Washington, was the star of the movie. And when Spike needed a boy about eight years old for a quick cutaway scene, well, it wasn't hard for John to get the part. May 19th, we celebrate Malcolm X's birthday because he was a great, great Afro-American. And Malcolm X is you. All of you. And you are Malcolm X. I'm Malcolm X! But for the next couple decades, that was pretty much it for his acting career. Washington played football in high school. He was good at it. He played in college. He even entered the NFL draft and played pro for a few years in other leagues. Washington made acting his career in 2015. He starred as Ricky Jarrett in the HBO drama Ballers, Ricky was a football player, which was familiar territory for Washington, but he also was great in it. This number, this number represents the man I am on and off the field. My dad wore 81, so I took the number 18 to flip the script. I swore a long time ago I'd never take the field wearing a jersey that didn't say anything but you, dad, on the front and back. Washington has since taken on a bunch of other big parts. He was the lead in Christopher Nolan's Tenet. He was in the romantic drama Malcolm and Marie. He's also in the brand new mystery comedy Amsterdam, which just hit theaters. When I talked with John David Washington in 2019, he'd just been reunited with Spike Lee, the first director he ever worked with. He starred in Lee's Academy Award-winning Black Klansman. Washington played Ron Stalworth, the first black detective to join the ranks of the Colorado Springs Police Department. In the film, Stalworth infiltrates a local chapter of the KKK over the phone, with the help of a white police officer who stands in for him in person. It's harrowing, hilarious, and at times hard to believe, but it's based on a true story. Before we get into my interview with John, let's hear a little bit from Black Klansman. In this scene, Ron has a job interview for the gig at Colorado Springs PD. He's sitting across from two men who are in charge of hiring. One of the interviewers is a white police officer. The other is a Black City employee, played by the great Isaiah Whitlock. A quick note, by the way, uh, Whitlock is an accomplished actor who happens to have a signature catchphrase. He developed it on the wire. It is one word, a word that you cannot say on the radio. And um, part of the signature is that he extends that word you can't say on the radio. Let's listen. How do you get along with people generally? Sir, they treat me right. I treat them right. Like I said before, I was raised up the right way. I mean, have you ever had any negative? What would you do if another cop called you a or worse? Would that happen, sir? <clears throat> There's never been a black cop in this city. Now, if we make you an officer, you will, in effect, be the Jackie Robinson of the Colorado Springs Police Force. And if you know anything about Jackie Robinson, you know 
he had to take a lot of uh, uh, guff from his fellow teammates, the fans, other teams, and the press. I know the Jackie Roosevelt Robinson story, sir. Good. So knowing that, if somebody called you a would you be able to turn the other cheek? <laughs> if I had to, sir, yes. Yes, I would. John David Washington, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Listening to that in audio form made me think that, like, there's two, basically two great reasons to aspire to be Spike Lee. One is one of the great filmmakers of his generation, great teacher, uh, you know, all those things. The other is if you put Isaiah Whitlock in your movie, you can be like, hey, Isaiah, would you mind going... <laughs> consistently too he never I mean he's always delivering that every time <laughs> it's even funnier when you bleep it out but you know what he's saying and you know who's saying it too it just gives more context to it it's, that's, that was funny <laughs> um, but in all sincerity welcome to the show thank you for coming on um, thanks for having me you were a professional football player for uh, for a pretty long time I mean professional football careers tend to be short yeah um did you always aspire to be a professional athlete? I kind of, I did it out of necessity in in a way. Um, I, I wanted to be an actor because of uh, seeing my father and seeing my mother uh, play the piano. Uh, I wanted to be a performer. But um, I started playing football, though, because uh, my, my dad started getting pretty popular in Hollywood. And uh, we started moving and moving to different places and... Uh, um, you know, started getting treated a little differently. So, um, of course, I wanted to protect my feelings, and um, I, I wanted to start making my own name. So I chose football. Now, I love the game. I always loved football. Randall Cunningham is the reason I played, seeing a person that looked like me at that position, at the quarterback position I had never seen before. You know what I mean? So I aspired to play in the NFL, but it was more of a rebellious sort of uh, quest of independence than it was to actually live out my dream, which was uh, which I was burying, which was acting. I had Terry Crews on the show a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Folks probably know as an actor. He was also a professional football player. The Redskins, right? Was it Washington? Yeah, he played for a few. He played for a few different teams. I mean, mm-hmm. he was. Uh, he bounced around. He played in NFL Europe. His career so was actually I. a lot a lot like yours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Terry Crews said to me was he kind of locked eyes with me. I mean, locked eyes with me. He was locked eyes with me the entire time. Terry Crews is very <laughs> Terry Crewsy. <laughs> it's a very powerful experience to talk to that man. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, he kind of locked eyes with me and he said, you know, with the exception of a few quarterbacks, everyone in the NFL is broken. Hmm. And like, like physically or, or just the mental? Uh, emotionally. Emotionally, oh, okay, yes, yes. His point being that it's some it's such a painful, brutal way to make a living that it takes a lot to drive someone to the level of success that gets you to the NFL. And I wonder if that was reflected in your experience. Yeah, I would concur with that. I, 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 it's watching football now. I, I, um, I can't believe what these young men put their bodies through, what they endure physically. Thinking about the, the human will, you know, and and to to provide for their families, to to change their circumstances. You, you got to credit them all of, and I and I'm no different. I I, I did, I endured uh, several concussions. Um, 
uh, torn meniscus, torn Achilles, uh, sports hernia, broken ribs, clavicle, all in the name of that independence. You know, it, it, I was willing to sacrifice it all to to know, to show more to myself, but I didn't know that at the time. For others, though, to show that I I, uh, I can earn my own keep. I am my own man. There's so many cases in the NFL that they're just trying to provide for their family, trying to do better for themselves. You know, and that sort of motivation. I mean, you see it on draft day. If you, it's the draft NFL draft weekend is is a, is such an, an an interesting social study because you see these kids. Um, these young men, I should say, of all nationalities, of all from all different kinds of backgrounds, have the same sort of reaction, especially draft picks one through ten. But really, all of them they get that this dream of getting their name called, you know, and they're ready to run through a brick wall. You know, they're almost programmed in that way, based off of the nature of the sport and what uh, what you think is promised for you at that rainbow, which is the NFL. You know what I mean? And um, once you get there. It totally changes. The whole perspective changes. And, and, and unfortunately, NFL really stands for not for long. And uh, there's not a, you get a sort of a crash course in how to be a professional, but uh, it's not really instituted early on in these young men's life. And more often than not, they learn the hard way. I think there's a documentary that's called uh, Broke. And, um, you know, the, was it the average life expectancy is three years? After, you know, after three years, they, they, they become you know, bankrupt. So um, it, it is an interesting, um, NFL specifically, it's such an interesting uh, case studies for these young men in this country and how they have to sort of turn it off, you know, after they're done playing. And uh, the learning curve, you know, is, is, is narrow. We've got so much more still to get into with John David Washington. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John David Washington. He stars in the movies Black Klansman, Tenet, and the new comedy Amsterdam. When you auditioned for Ballers, you were still in a boot from the injury that ended your football career. Was it just a, well, what's the worst that could happen situation when when you took that meeting or whatever it's called, went out to that audition? <laughs> took the meeting, yeah. Um, yeah, I was in, in a boot and crutches on a strong dose of uh, painkillers. Now, I had prepared for the audition. I had been working working the scenes with my mom, actually. She's the one that dropped me off, too. So uh, shout-out to Pauletta. Um, so I got up there with Sheila Jaffe, who I call my other mother in the, uh, in the industry, and— um, I, I thought that, yeah, I, I mean, I've been turned down so many times in, in the NFL. I, I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of used to, I'm sort of impervious to this pain and rejection. So I, I, I what's the worst that can happen? I guess I had nothing to lose and I'm feeling pretty good on the, on these, uh, on the medication. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, why not? You know what I mean? But like, I knew how much I wanted. It wasn't why not? Like, sure, I'll try acting. It wasn't like that. Cause in fact, my agent who, who Andrew Finkelstein, um, who told me about the audition, I was resisting at first because I wanted to come here to New York and study for a year at least and then start going on auditions. And he says, he told me that, you know, you, you're not going to get the job. You're not going to get a lot of jobs. You're going to get turned down a lot, but you need to get used to auditioning, getting in the room and getting comfortable, studied or not studied. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. And I'm used to getting rejected anyway. So, all right, I can do that. So well, the plan was go in there, Go into this audition and sort of, you know, get get torn up 
tell me what to work on and sort of apply those things when I got to New York and started studying. Um, and the craziest things started happening. Um, they, they just kept inviting me back, kept inviting me back. And 10 auditions later, I got it. Did you say 10? 10, 10 auditions, yeah. That's a lot of auditions, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, they because they were like, they had to be sure. I mean, you know, it's just guys basically coming off the street. Like, they couldn't believe. I mean, it, it was it was a huge, I had to fight. I had to fight. There was a lot of people trying to get that job, and uh, and they had to be sure. Sheila Jaffe, I got to shout her out. Peter Berg, uh, HBO, they supported me first. There was still some resistance, but those, Peter Berg, uh, Sheila Jaffe, and Papa Dave Levinson, they they really backed me. They were in my corner. And uh, Sheila Jaffe, actually, after the third audition, sh- shot me a text telling me, um, you should retire from football. Like, th- you were meant to do this. You know, they were, I think, they, you know, they couldn't believe that, uh, you know, I've never done it before. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I love her to death for that. Let's hear a little bit from the first season of Ballers uh, from a few years ago. So... In this scene, Ricky arranged to meet with his ex-girlfriend, Annabella, played by Annabella Acosta. And Annabella, called Bella, left Ricky because she was fed up with his cheating. And they're standing in front of a public fountain, and Ricky is holding a bouquet of roses and lilies. Bella, I'm sorry I lost my head, okay? I'm sorry for everything. I keep repeating my mistakes, but I'm trying to change. Trying to do things different. Wow. Ricky, you can't be serious. <laughs> Seven carrot series. You like it? Look at that. What'd you think? You really believe you're ready for marriage? Because after all, I mean, you know, this is an engagement ring, right? What? Because I know you don't think I'm so stupid to where I would just accept the apology ring. No, baby, because no, this is to what me. I... There is no ring, no house, no car. Not even the whole diamond. Can buy my forgiveness. Baby, that's that's a $400,000 ring. Kobe spent $4 million. You delusional He makes more than me. Baby, come back. Baby. Baby, come back. Baby, come back. I got it. I got it. I got it. Baby, baby, baby. You, we can get married if you want to. We can get married if you want to. <laughs> oh, my God. That dude. <laughs> Ricky Jarrett, man. <laughs> He's he's crazy. What did you realize you... I mean, you had spent your whole life with a dad who was in movies from when you were little. He was, uh, you know, he was a new actor. Um, By the time you were an adult, he was a movie star. You know, you had been in... You're in Malcolm X. (laughs) Um, <laughs> you had, you'd, you'd done this to some, this had been a huge part of your life, your entire life. Mm-hmm. But when you showed up for set as basically a greenhorn, mm-hmm. what did you realize you did not know? What did I realize? Everything, you know, how to even <laughs> read a call sheet, um, you know, just, just what blocking meant. Uh, uh, I had to act like I did, but I was like, "What? What is this? What? What? What is call time?" Mean? <laughs> you know, I was just, I was like, I was ignorant to a lot of that stuff. And you know, rehearsal when we would rehearse, you know, I'm like going full tilt, like I'm not like reserving anything for 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 the scene, and, and I was just ready to go at all time, every take. Yes, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, I'm always ready, but just I was just so I had a very still a very 
much a football, very much a football mentality and uh, was wearing myself out. You know, <laughs> I, I slept well that first day. And uh, and also when I cut the first day also was uh, was a club scene. So like there was like a whole bunch of extras and here comes The Rock and and Pete Berg is like, you ready? Because I know that they, you know, this, they're still taking a chance on me. I did. Because I, uh, Sheila also says some people are great auditioners and they and they can't. You know, they don't step up to the plate when it's game time. Others aren't very good auditioners, are great when they get the job. So I knew I had a lot of pressure on me, and, and, and I wanted to make them right because they fought for me because there were some people that, that didn't necessarily believe. So they did. So I, I, I had a lot on the line. And I just I just went for it. I, I just went for it. But I'm definitely looking around, like, at Pete and at, at, at The Rock and at Omar and all these extras, and I'm like, man, this is crazy. I'm, uh, what 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 have I done? <laughs> what, what? Wait, I, I think. Wait, let's time out, guys. Time out. I need another month, you know. But uh, no, I went for it. I went for it. How did you get Black Klansman? I got a text message from Spike Lee saying, <laughs> <laughs> saying, "We quote, all have this story." <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? No, you know, everybody gets texted from him, right? I mean, I got to say, "Yo, this Spike called me in those exact words." Yo, this Spike called me. You know, I'm thinking this is a prank. I definitely didn't think he had my number. So I didn't know what was going on, <laughs> um, but I called him because I, I need this would be great. I need the job, you know. I'm out here, you know, trying to get jobs. So um, I called him, and he and he sort of soft pitched me the story about a the the, the, uh, the first African American detective in Colorado Springs that infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan. Now I'm thinking, you know, was it the Car- is it Carlos Bigsby, the Bigsby star, uh, uh, skit by Dave Chappelle? I'm like, oh, is this some sort of play on that? But I'm in because Jordan Peele and Spike are in, so I'm in. But he says, no, there is a book, and he's going to send it to me. He sends me the book around Star Wars Black Klansman. Uh, I read it, and I call him back, and I, 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 I'm blown away. I tell him how much I loved it. And he said, all right, I'll see you this summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got it. Now, I, I, I had done a movie for his wife who, who produced this movie called Monster that premiered in Sundance last year. So he was familiar with that and, and some stuff on Ballers. So, um, you know, he knew. I, but, I mean, he, he knew of my work. But, um, yeah, that was basically the audition process. Let's hear another scene from Black Klansman. John David's character and his partner, Flip, who's played by Adam Driver, are at the police station. And they've just come back from... Uh, this is relatively early in the film, an undercover operation at a meeting, at a Klan meeting. And Flip, who is white and is the in-person Ron, is upset because his cover was almost blown by one of the Klansmen who's very suspicious of him. And uh, that guy basically just tried to uh, get him to take a lie detector test at gunpoint and also drop his trousers to prove that he was not Jewish. And he <laughs> only very narrowly escaped the situation. I didn't want to say what trap, but that pecker would have had a gun in my face. And he was an hair away from pulling the trigger. And he didn't. But he could have. And then I would have been dead. For what? Stopping some jerk-offs from playing dress-up? Flip, it's intel. Well, I'm not risking my life to prevent some rednecks from lighting a couple sticks on fire. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie hot dog white boy. Mm. It's 
what some light-skinned black folks do. They pass for white. Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the Klan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie, that's my business. It's our business. Your voice is so important in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had to convince the... Uh... David, he had David Duke convinced and uh, Klan's members convinced that he was a racist white man. <laughs> You're making choices both when he is on and off the phone. Like, I feel like this would be a different story if the premise was that he was doing, you know, a di- white voice, direct one to one code switching. If he was doing a white people voice on the phone and a black people voice off the phone in the ways that people think of them, it would be a less complex story for this character than the way that you chose to do it. I was That was another, what was so compelling about the book even, just how, he, you know, Ron Starworth talked about this, um, that he, he didn't change his voice at all. You know what I mean? And um, I love that, as we understand code switching and all that, um, he, he saw it as he had he got into character as as an undercover detective does. He talked about that, you know, being like acting and getting into character. He had to speak these words of hatred, the vernacular of uh, of racism and hate, but but he didn't change his voice at all. So um, I couldn't have either. I shouldn't have either. I would I, I would have done a disservice to to the man and to the film if I if I had if I'd have done that. I just wanted to keep it as authentic as possible, and to be able to. To also understand, as I did reading it and doing research, how complicated it is to be an African-American detective, police officer in this country, not blue enough for the department, not black enough for your own community, you know, and to be able to display that uh, cinematically was a great opportunity for me to, to explore. It was, it was something I was very curious about and uh, wanted to, to it, it meant a lot to me to be able to, to, to put on display how thankless of a job it is and how we as a community need to be, especially in the African-American community, need to be more specific with our contentions, with, our, with you know, with, um, you know, how we feel about uh, law enforcement, you know, because there are great, there are some cases out there. I think, I think Ron Starworth is an American hero. During his investigation, there were no cross burnings. There were no uh, terrorist acts violent acts on the, in, in the community during that time. That's a big deal to me. That's a big deal because he wasn't trying to change the world. And it was also a big deal that he had gotten great support from white officers That's you know that helped him in this case. It wasn't just one man on a mission, you know. You know, cinema, you know movie-wise, that would have been convenient, but it wasn't. And, 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 and Spike held that true to, to be true in the film as well. So that, um, that was a big deal to me. That's, that's heroic. That, he is a man that did his job. And, um, and I'm just glad because of the, 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 it's such a unique case and story that uh, I'm just so happy and, and um, proud to be a part of uh, telling that story in a movie. We'll wrap up with John David Washington. After a quick break, when we return, we will talk about some of the criticisms Black Klansmen received for its portrayal of policing and how Washington felt about them. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. And now, a live reading from Rachel's Poetry Corner. Elephants Theremin's Clifton, Neopets Poorstrips Jepson, Pine Smell Jellybeans Goalie Goals, Skittles Squirrels and the Mole. 
Celery Chopsticks Pumpernickel, A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Lullabies Tie-Dye, The More You Know. All of these things on our wonderful show. All these things and more wait for you on Wonderful every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is actor John David Washington. He starred in the movies Tenet of Monsters and Men and the brand new comedy Amsterdam, which is in theaters now. When he and I talked in 2019, he'd just starred in Black Klansman, Spike Lee's Academy Award winner. In it, he played a black police officer who infiltrated the KKK over the phone. Let's get back into our conversation. Your character's girlfriend in the film is an activist who is opposed to the police in the United States pretty directly. And there were criticisms of the film, including from uh, Boots Riley, who has been a guest on this show and um, is a guy I've known for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's Um, right, the Bay Bay Area, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Total teenage hero of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Who who are critical of the idea that in a story about race in America, a police officer should be a hero? How did you feel about that? Was that something that you thought about before that came up after the movie came out? Uh, no, I know. And, and shout out to Boost Riley. I saw his film, and that was that was it was crazy. And we we ain't never seen anything like that. You know, that was we ain't seen anything like it. And uh, I think. Um, it's important that uh, we're in a great time right now in film and cinema in this business that we're getting opportunities to um, to tell our stories in certain parts of the world, certain communities are getting our stories out there, that they're putting money, they're funding these ideas and these these great writers and, and directors out there. So that's it's it's all positive. But and, uh, like, I, and so for, forgive me, but I don't I don't want to like I don't want to give the impression that it's like a binary between. Uh, this movie and that movie because I know oh, that I know how much Boots admires Spike Lee and his work and uh, how much about the film he also admired mm. and he he made he worked very hard to to make that clear when he was being critical. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, no, I, I um again I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. I, I before the research, um before I got and I did another film called Monsters and Men and I got to do ride-alongs for about a month and a half and 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 be with a lot of uh I know uh. Um, police officers of color, I didn't realize what they went through, you know. So, like uh, Laura Harrier's character, I was I would probably would have been more on that side until I got the full perspective, a fuller, more clear perspective on uh, what they do. There's a lot of, you know, men and women in the minority that um, that are protected and serving that don't get thank you, that are, are, are that get nothing but criticism, get lumped into. A lot of police officers that have abused their power, that are uh, incompetent in how they, uh, you know, how they handle things. So that was very important for me. Um, this is a man, Ron Starr was a man with great integrity. You know, he, he didn't apologize. He was unapologetically black. You know, he'll tell you that. He was a man of his community. You know, I think he's, he says it to, to the love interest, uh, to Laura's character towards the end. Like, just because I don't wear a black beret, black... Uh, gloves or leather jacket that I'm not for the liberation of my people. He feels like there's a way to do it from the inside. There's a way to do it. And the law was on his side when confronting a David Duke, you know? And, you know, you could have made a movie about how he even came into being a police, how he got to become a detective, a police, uh, 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 
Colorado Springs uh, detective in the 70s. So uh, to me, what, the, the, what I listed earlier about why he's a hero is because of uh, he was successful in his mission uh, makes is, is what I would has how I would respond. You know, again, this is one case. This is an, this is a man that that uh, was successful in this case, and he did it. He, uh, to me, he did it the right way. John David Washington, I'm so grateful you came on Bullseye. It was so so great to get to talk to you, and and thanks for your wonderful work in this in this movie and elsewhere. I appreciate that so much. Thanks for having me. This was great. John David Washington from 2019. His latest movie is Amsterdam. It's directed by David O. Russell and features dozens of other movie stars, Chris Rock, Margot Robbie, Robert De Niro, others. Black Klansman, in which Washington starred, is available to rent and buy digitally pretty much everywhere. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I finally retired the set of drinking glasses that I bought 10 or 15 years ago at a thrift store. I had broken one too many. Two of them got stuck together when I tried to separate them using heat and cold to expand and contract them. One of them exploded. Uh, The new ones ones are tempered glass. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at MaxFun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Uh, They let us use that. We appreciate it. Bullseye is on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, at Bullseye on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. You will find our interviews and stuff we're up to there, uh, great places to go if you want to share something that you liked on this week's show. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.